So my guest today, Chase Jarvis, grew up in Seattle, kind of typical skateboard kid, into music, into soccer, went to college, and then made this really abrupt turn um, when his grandfather, who he loved, passed and left him a camera. And that profoundly changed the direction of his life, leading him into the world of photography, kind of finding his own way, completely bucking the system to become a big name photographer in the world of action sports and beyond. And then moving into the world of entrepreneurship and service and contribution, where he built a giant company called Creative Live, which has taught tens of millions of people how to essentially build creative lives and livings. And he has a new book out now called Creative Calling. So Chase has been on the podcast before many years ago, actually, in the very early days. Funny enough, both that time and this time, we ended up having issues in our main studio. So I grabbed our mobile ring and ran down to the hotel he was staying at. And uh, we ended up sort of jamming in his hotel room. So you may hear a bit of a difference in the sound, a little bit of background noise. It is all part of the New York City experience. And we really dive into sort of a reflective moment in Chase's life, why he wrote this book, what it's all about, and the really big lessons that he has learned as a fiercely creative, innovative, also rebellious person who has completely built his own path, very often going outside of the existing systems, completely bucking traditions and expectations, and landing in a place where he wants to turn back now and share this hard-earned wisdom. So excited to share this conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. The events of your life that have led up to this moment are um, a big part of this story, a big part of what took you there. And um, for those listening, we if, if you want sort of like the early, early days, we'll link to the conversation we had you know, like years back. 
Well, I want to touch down on one particular moment. You were, um, you grew up in Seattle. You're, you were the skate kid. You were always active. You were really into soccer. You end up finding yourself in college and you're doing well. You're playing soccer in your mind, maybe headed to med school after that, close to graduating and something really traumatic happens in your life. Take me there. So, um, I was reasonably close with my grandparents and, uh, they lived close to us. Uh, my, my, I was, my parents and I was, I was raised with my parents in Seattle and I was going to uh, school in San Diego at the time. And it was just a couple of days before my college graduation, looking forward to having the family down to celebrate the last, uh, I wish I could say four years, but it was more like five and change. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I remember picking up the phone and, um, and it was my dad who had just, he was still at my grandfather's house and, and my grandfather just dropped dead of a heart attack completely no forecast, no, like wasn't having problems, you know, no signals whatsoever before. And just like, and it was gone. And it, early in, in that, like I hadn't dealt with a lot of um, people dying that were close to me. It was when the grandparents, you know, would come of age, grandparents are starting to get older. Um, so this was like, it wasn't my first grandparent that to, to pass, but it was certainly like out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, I like to try and find, I don't want to gold plate it because I don't want to make it like just, you know, 24 hours later, I was thinking about all the upside. So, you know, uh, traumatic experience aside, um, the silver lining was that he was an avid hobbyist and an avid photographer himself. And he collected, he was like a tinkerer and he had a little, you know, just garage downstairs at a workbench that had, you know, all kinds of camera stuff. And he was always tinkering and buying the new thing. And both he and my father were hobbyists. And, um, when he passed, I was given his cameras and a little bit of money. And with those two things, I had, I would say reasonably quickly decided to, um, go explore the world and teach myself how to take pictures in part because of his legacy in part because I was inspired by photography. I remember looking at pictures that he and my father had shot of me and my friends as young kids and not because it was photograph of us or me in particular, but it was because it was a moment in time. And I remember thinking the power of a photograph to tell an entire story in a hundredth or a thousandth of a second. Uh, and so to go back to that moment was, it was, a it was again, both sort of one of the hardest moments of my young adult life. And also I would say the thing that gave me permission, it was, you know, I like to think of these moments as the, the toughest moments as also an opportunity because whether we want to or not, we have to take a really close look at what's happening in our lives and that we it, like the passing of someone that we care about, it just frames a lot of our lives around um, who are you, what are you doing with your time, with your energy, how are you spending it, with with whom. Um, it would be really nice and convenient if we didn't have to do that, if we can do it with a Vipassana or a, a Sunday morning jog. And I do believe that we, we can have access to that, but the reality is that for, for whatever reason, popular culture or life, we don't. So it was a profound, profound experience for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems so on so many levels and 
You know, one of the, the things that I'm also curious about, so this was deeply traumatic, somebody you cared about deeply and, and was a part of you, you lost, you gained instant access to this love of his, which was sort of shared with you through, through equipment. Mm-hmm. Through gear. <laughs> through yeah. gear. Mm-hmm. Um, you were on a path before that moment, though. I was. You were, you kind of had a relatively clear trajectory in mind. So you saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to in part honor my, my grandpa's sort of legacy through this amazing ability to capture moments and see if I can make that a part of who I am too. It seems like at that point, this also wasn't necessarily, oh, this is my future. But, but what you also did was you, part of that decision was saying no to the plan mm-hmm. was saying no to this well-plotted path that you are about to embark upon. Mm-hmm. So when you did that in your mind, were you actually, was that a hard no in your mind or was that a, I'm just going to take some time and do this thing and see what happens. But I kind of plan on going back to that. Mm. It was, it was the first, this is like truth right here. Okay? Yeah. Cause there's the, what I've told everyone in my life for basically most of my life. And then there was, you know, now having a little distance from it, you can connect the dots looking backwards. And for me, it was a, oh, hell no, I'm not doing the thing that everybody else thinks I'm doing going forward. I have to figure out a new thing. And to me, it was the first step in a masquerade in a basically a show that I was going to put on for everybody else in my life to start weaseling out of all of the stuff that everybody else wanted me to do. All of the expectations of parents and culture and friends and relatives. And I knew at the moment that I didn't know that it was going to be photography, but I knew that it wasn't going to be the stuff that I had signed up for very publicly at the suggestion is not strong enough of a word and oppression is not, is not, is too big a word, but there's someone, there's just a, a bunch of inputs culturally that, and you know, we're talking about me right now, but this is a part of the book that, that we're going to talk about over the course of the next you know, short while here is that everyone's got a whole list of shoulds for you. And if you're not careful, you end up living somebody else's like all those shoulds or some common, even worse, an aggregate of all of the shoulds of everybody else for your one precious life. And at that moment, to go back to your question directly, I realized that I couldn't sign up for that stuff. And this was the beginning of a way out. It was a crack that I could then step into, figure out what my journey was, and at the same time, find a way to not do the thing. Because I was terrified of disappointing everyone in my life, the people who had provided for me. And two things occurred to me, I remember at that time, um, and especially now looking backwards, but two things. One, how this is probably the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. Be willing to disappoint everyone else in my life to do the thing that I knew I had to do, which was to, it was both simultaneously not do what I'd been talking about publicly, going to medical school or graduate school and whatever. And also that if this is hard for me, when I'm basically, I have, I'm white, I'm male, I'm born in the United States in the seventies. Oh my, it's just, there's a subtle at that time now brick in the head awareness, like 
wow, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Imagine if you didn't come from all those privileged backgrounds. That I, and I was, I mean, to, to be fair, I was lower middle class and I wouldn't say super poor, but not well off, but I had basically every other advantage and it was still the hardest thing in the world to do, to just grab your own life and start to drive it the way you wanted. And in that moment, it was the first semblance of, wait a minute, this is doable. Not only is it a, something that I want to do, it's something that I, I feel like I have to do. Yeah. So this was right at the edge of college for you. You're about to graduate. You're dating the person who would eventually become your wife, yep. right? Yep. And so you're close to her. And when you make a decision like this, yeah, it impacts your life, mm -hmm. right? When you make a decision like this and you're you're in a deep relationship that will then sustain on for yeah. decades and decades afterwards. It doesn't just affect you. It, it affects her. For right? sure. I'm curious when you have moments like this, how people navigate those intimate conversations. Mm. Um, I thought a lot about this and I appreciate you asking the question and it's pretty well chronicled in the book because this is, you know, I, I'm talking, I was talking just moments ago, very generally about disappointing people. But when you start, you talk about it generally and it's a little bit easier, you start talking about like your parents or your spouse or your partner, like it starts to get really real. And I think that's probably why you're asking the question. And fortunately, Kate and I were both young enough at the time and um, she was born of adventure. She moved a lot as a kid and she'd lived abroad. And so the thought of, of striking out and traveling the world and living very, I mean, we literally ate beans and, and tuna fish out of the can in order to make this possible for months and months. It was relatively manageable, but it's a reasonable time to put a pin in that and say, I've, you know, through my own experience as a, an adult and through t conversations with, you know, hundreds of people on my podcast and, you know, across creative live. And, you know, we have millions of students, so you get a lot of input and a lot of data. And there's a, a really clear pattern arises that that's ultimately the hardest thing that we do is to disappoint others that we care deeply about and for whom, and for whom they care uh, of us. And, so while it wasn't too bad on me with Kate because we were young and there was a sense of ambition and, and exploration and a willingness to, we didn't have a lot to lose. I do, I do know for the people who are listening right now that that is the thing that's keeping you from doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing in this world, to listen to that little call inside you, that voice of that, whatever you, joy you got as an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old when you discovered that thing and you thought you might be able to do it forever. And then reality and all the shoulds and the oughts and the culture starts you know, weighing down on you. And it's not it's not a sledgehammer. It's a thousand paper clips on your back, a million paper clips. And, you know, and, and at some point you just realize you can't escape it until you can. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, the weight of external expectations, I think for so many of us mm. is stifling. And, and I think also it, it, I think it's important for us to probably also touch down in this part of the conversation on the fact that, we have the weight of expectations, which very often, just psychologically, we are, very often we don't want to deal with that. We will, we will stifle so much of what we feel we're here to do in the name of not having to, quote, disappoint. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, there, as you mentioned, different people are born of different means. For sure. Um, and and will have. So it's, it's not, for some, it's expectations. 
And that and literally when you strip that away, yep. then it's okay. So what is the process by which I go from here to that thing that I have in my head for other people? It is, it is quite realistically much more difficult for and sure. much more involved simply because they come from a profoundly different circumstance. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I'm, I try and be super yeah. aware of. And you know, the way that I'm, I like to think about it is if we at least put the spectrum on the table, then people can put themselves on that spectrum. Like I'm not just because I came from maybe low economic status, but uh, you know, all the other benefits of my random birth that, and then I had to navigate it. And by sharing that it was hard for me, even with all that relative privilege that hopefully people can put themselves on that spectrum, you know, and of course there's probably a million different axes, right? But it's not to provide, to provide the roadmap. It's to show that a roadmap can be found in all this messy stuff. And the roadmap, as, as you said, from where you are to where you want to be, what I find is it's much closer. Hmm. Even from interviewing people who are you know, more disadvantaged in all sorts of other ways, there's a really common reporting to me in that, wow, it was really just a series of a handful of small decisions that I told myself a story about how hard, I mean, again, we got to qualify that this is like, there are people who can't you know, escape their village or their, they can't leave or their families will not survive kind of things. But if we, if we, um, talk, I think try and most of the folks who are listening here are probably not in that of an extreme circumstance, but there's a spectrum. And if you can put yourself on that spectrum and realize that you're a handful of decisions away from where you are right now to where you want to be, um, I think that's profoundly inspiring and that it's doable and um, that not only are these sort of things that are nice to have, but if you just get to that really quiet place inside of you and you listen for that call, that it's there for everyone. It's about finding it and then about doing those things. Yeah, right. So there, there are kind of two keys there, I think. One is finding it. Yep, for sure. Which is a whole process. That's a thing. We'll, yep. we'll talk a bit about that. <laughs> That's um, a thing, and then there is the, how do I extract myself from whatever circumstance or limitation or expectation I have to the extent that I can. And potentially for some people take even, you know, a longer, very gradual lens on the process. If oh, that's what sure. you need to do. For sure. Um, you went out. So you basically, you run with this thing, you grab the cameras and you hit the road and you just start taking pictures. So what's interesting about this to me also is, you know, we're sitting here recording this in 2019 where everybody's got a badass phone on the, the device that right. they have in their pocket. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, you start out when you're working with film, Yep. which beyond the technical changes and all this other stuff, the psychology of constraint when you're working from film, especially when you're like pretty young yeah. and you don't have a lot of money in your pocket and it takes a long time to process and every roll costs you like 10 or 20 bucks back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the thoughtfulness and the mindset, the psychology that goes into figuring out how to do this thing is profoundly different For sure. than today. It's go slowly. Yeah. As a, like everything's fast, and I advocate for learning as fast as fast as you can because it's nice to take a picture, look at it, see what you learn, what you didn't learn, and this is true. We're talking about photography, but it could be true for anything, right? Give a speech, create a business, um, make a cake, uh, you know, anything, and 
to be able to learn quickly and figure out your mistakes on your phone. Like, oh, wow, that's overexposed. Or, oh, I should frame it differently. There's a pole coming out of my kid's head or whatever. And to not have that to learn, it does, it the, the lens that you have to put on it is a slower lens, which meant that I probably wasn't going to eat the next day or I was going to skip a day and a half for the food in order to develop my film. And I would have been camping at the time rather than staying in a hostel so that like all those little $10 bumps could make it possible to develop film. And it does focus your attention. Like the stakes got higher and yeah, I, I don't advocate that. I mean, it's just, it's sort of what you're willing to do um, in order to find the thing or tap into the thing or get the juice that you're trying to get out of any moment in life. Or in this case, for me, it was learning something that I was called to, to spend my time on. Yeah. It's really interesting to me also in the context of the pursuit of creative mastery, right? You look at the research and this is something a lot of people in the creative, every creative domain out there doesn't actually like to own, but the research is pretty crystal clear in the academic world that Mastery is in no small part a volume game. You know, when you look at people who are charged with, okay, so create a thousand just random pictures or sketches, you know, in this window of time, and then we'll pull out the 10 best of those. And then you talk to another group of people who say, create 10 phenomenal things in this window of time. The 10 best pulled out of, you know, like the volume where people are just kind of like going over and over and over and over and over. And the research are, are generally evaluated as being much better much more, quote, creative. Yeah. I don't even think it's generally. I think it's like overtly. <laughs> and I talk, there's a, there's a, a, some apocryphal study about, uh, uh, I think it might be fictitious, but it's, 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 it's littered throughout the research and then the, the environment that you're talking about right now, the academic world about a class that is split down the middle, uh, a pottery class. You know, one is like, you're literally you're, you're judged, your grade is on volume and the other is you have a project and it wasn't even close. Right. So the volume, you know, dramatically, um, exceeded obviously the, the folks that just made one, but the number of great things dramatically outpaced the projects that the, the half the class had had to focus on just one thing and just, it blew them out of the water in both axes. Yeah. And when you started, you couldn't do that. For real. <laughs> you had to be sort of hyper mindful because your constraints w simply would not allow it. I do think that, that that actually had a profound impact on my being a massive advocate for technology, for creativity. Hmm. Like when digital photography started emerging, and not to go down a rabbit hole, but the precious photographers of your, they were like, oh, digital sucks. And here's all the reasons why and I'll never be as good as film and blah, 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 blah. And I actually was one of the few pros. I mean, I remember getting like ridiculed for this. Like as soon as digital came out, I bought the first digital camera that I could possibly afford. And because specifically the pain that I had through learning, I realized that this would be a massive accelerant. And, you know, to your point, like just volume and digital photography made the volume, basically the capability go to a hundred when it was at a one or a two. Yeah. So you took a lot of heat for that. Mm -hmm. That was not the first time you took heat in your career. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365 day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. Let's fill a little bit of the gap here, okay. right? So you're, you go off on this adventure, mm-hmm. you start taking everything you can and you're, you're semi-maniacal about 
tracking because you can't immediately see what's good and bad. You know, you're going to have to you wait. You did your research. You know, <laughs> you know? so you're like every shot. Well, yeah. this was like the F-stop. This was I wrote down. This was, so you knew when you saw the, the shots a month later yep. developed, yep. you remember, you could tell what the settings on the camera were. So you become this fierce autodidact. Mm. But you, you didn't go up through the, quote, mainstream mentoring assistantship you know, system where, you know, in theory, that is how you get made in that world. You yep. know, you rise up through this very well-defined path, not unsimilar to the art world, the painting world, the gallery system, right? College. There, right. There is a prescribed <laughs> path yep. and this is how you do it. Yep. You are kind of like learning on your own out of sight of all the pros and then you kind of start to sneak in. <laughs> Not and, even kind of like literally like <laughs> right. I have all kinds of examples of sneaking in, but yeah. And you start to sell your work and you're, you're selling your work essentially to the same people who are buying the work of these people who've been doing it for decades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're taking kid at a very young age because who do you think you are? Yep. And I, I think it's fascinating that, you know, it's a really interesting example to me of almost the power of, of coming from a completely different mindset and almost not even knowing what the system is for sure and making your own. Yeah. It had a huge role. Like my ignorance of what it was supposed to be certainly was a catapult to my being able to become it. I started living the idea that if you were the verb, you could be the noun. I had business cards printed up that said Chase Jarvis photographer before I had a professional camera. So you end up selling your work in relatively short order. You become a really well-known photographer doing a lot of stuff with outdoors, action sports, yep. and you're building this incredible career. And something happens in you that says, you know, um, this is really cool, but there are other things. Hmm. There are other things. Was it a gradual awakening or was there a moment well, not dissimilar to my grandfather, um, I think you can look back and, and you can see very, very clearly it was a moment. I really wish it didn't have to be a moment, but this is my slow learning. You can just see like this is this is the universe like beating me over the head to pay attention to something. And in a very similar fashion, uh, yeah, I would say I had the career that I had dreamed of. You know, that was a we'll just fast forward a few years there where I, I, I figured out a bunch of things that helped me, as you said, license my pictures to people who were, who were, you know, alongside people who were much held in higher esteem and, and uh, had sort of paid their dues, quote, quote, unquote. And I had not, I think I had paid my dues in a very, very different hard way, but so let's just, we're fast forward to, to we're there. And I was aware that the, the life of an independent artist was also very much about trying to make it. And if you don't take care of yourself and try and put money on the table and in your pocket or, or food on the table, money in your pocket, that n no one else is going to come along and give it to you. So it's very much, um, it felt competitive. It felt very chest beady, like I have to stand out and this is how you get noticed. And that's a, a myth a, a well-chronicled myth that if you, your work is just great, that it's going to, you're going to be discovered. And that's as, as you and I both know, that is, couldn't be further from the truth. You have to, you have to spend time sharing your work with others and that takes many forms. I'm lightly pondering this at this one point in my life. And, um, I'm on an assignment, uh, for Nike and, um, I'm in Alaska and 
again, this is fast. We have fast forwarded. So, uh, well, to be able to shoot campaigns for Nike, for example, unlimited helicopter budget in the, in, um, the mountains of Alaska, the Chugash range. And we, when you go to Alaska, you, you sometimes have to sit there for weeks on end and wait for the storms to blow over and to find the perfect weather in which you go out and you do your work. And as a photographer, when you're doing those things, you, it's, it's dangerous after big storms. Um, but you do a hundred percent of your work in that 1% of time where it's most dangerous. And, uh, and I was caught in a massive avalanche and it was the biggest avalanche of the season and all the heli ski deals. And by every measure, every measure, I should be dead right now. I shouldn't be here. And you can, you can read the story in the book. I recount it in, in some painstaking detail, but suffice to say, it was uh, another one of those moments. This is again, life hitting me over the head with a hammer saying, look around, you're really, your self-awareness is low. You need to be doing something different. And it's not like 180 degrees from what you're doing right now, but it's a different trajectory that's going to solve for the things that you're questioning right now. Why am I doing this? What's the, what's my, why, what's my bigger purpose? You know, thinking about your work, Jonathan, about how important purpose is. And for me, my purpose was to find my passion and my passion was great. And it was delivering all the things that I thought, you know, friends and travel and a career. And then even that started to feel a little bit hollow. And it's like, that wasn't quite purpose. And, uh, it, it, you know, coming as close to death as I came, it slapped the shit out of me. It was like, wake up. And yeah, it made me realize that I wanted to do something different and it wasn't bigger or more or fancier or anything. It was just different. And in part it was to share. I had felt like I tapped into like the mainframe, I said, Oh my gosh, I figured out. And it was, remember all the pain that I talked about my grandfather and the years of trying to figure out how to be good at the craft. And then you make it. And then it's sort of like when you make it, you realize you are just getting started. And, uh, and so I wanted to see if I could try and find a way to help give that gift to other people as well. The gift of tapping into the thing that you're supposed to be doing to your why, to your purpose. And, that opened a whole new door for me, which was sort of the next level of purpose for me. If you're peeling the onion or opening a door or whatever analogy you want to make. Yeah. I mean, it's it, from the outside looking in, you know, it, it, it looks like this is the move from you as a craft person, um, craft person building a business, yeah, sure. but focused where like the center of your identity is chase the photographer, Yep. right? Chase the person who can see in a way that other people can't see and capture it in a way other people can't capture it to chase the guy who is moving into this interesting other phase, you describe it in your work as, um, you know, like sort of like the, the move between two arcs, right? A acquisition and contribution. Yep. Do you feel like that was a moment where you started to, to bridge that gap? N not only was it like, I mean, I can reduce it to a 10 second window. Tell me. <laughs> it was during the avalanche. So when you get caught in an avalanche, it looks like it's happening really slow motion and all the, the footage that you've seen on national geographic or wherever you've seen avalanches happen. And when a skier gets caught in that nine out of 10 times, the skier triggers the avalanche. And that was the case with me. We won't go into the details about how we were there and why we were there and should we have been there and all those things. We checked all those boxes, but mother nature has a plan. <laughs> and when that happens, what you know, you may have heard near death, revelations before, but time, it was like the avalanche took hours, 
like I remember very methodically as I was hit by the snow that was coming from behind me, it of course knocked me off my feet and they call it the white room, but there's nothing white about it. Snow is white, but it's pitch black because you're under the snow and there, I was in a very big avalanche. So there were, you know, a, a trillion snowballs and, you know, hundreds of Volkswagen car sized chunks of snow rolling down this 50 degree mountain face at 50 miles an hour. And yet my mind, everything was going so slow. And it was the first thing was like, Oh my God, this is serious business. And then, so, Oh, so this is what it's like. And is it really going to come down to this? And there was both, there were two parallel paths of my thinking. One was what I was doing to, to get myself out of this particular situation. And the other is the thing that I've been doing suddenly feels insignificant. <laughs> and that's both to focus your attention. And I think also this is like the higher are our, like what's, what's next for us as humans, what, what another plane of consciousness. So if um, we can cut to the chase, <laughs> that's a bad joke. Um, it, we can, the, the end of the story is that in 10 seconds, I didn't know it in the middle of the 10 seconds, but I knew that something had changed and shifted in me. And I recalled the story in a little more detail in my podcast. And, you know, when we flew away from the hill that day, I was, my, my injuries were minor and I should not be alive. You know, that night I didn't sleep. And the reality is we still had to finish the job. So he had to go back out in this environment, but I stayed up all night, virtually all night, I think. And, and I, and I didn't know exactly what was different, but I knew something in me had changed and I, I could back trace it back to that 10 seconds. And, um, it took the next several, I would say months to really reconcile. And then years later to ultimately reconcile with the feelings. Cause I didn't really talk about it. And, you know, it's like either as, as, um, you know, I don't want to draw this down gender. I don't want to draw it down sport or athlete, but they're just, I didn't, it didn't seem useful to talk a lot about it. And only years later, when I really started discovering that thinking more critically about that 10 seconds, that's when everything changed. And the way it changed for me was I felt like I tapped into that second arc. If the first arc was about acquisition, acquiring skills, acquiring knowledge, acquiring financial security, acquiring whatever, the second arc for me would be about contribution and about trying to manifest my ideas in the world in such a way that it, it helped others. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? Ish. Right. Um, early thirties, late twenties, right? Early thirties. You've been doing this for a bit yeah. and you're, yeah. you're well perched in your profession and yeah. your occupation. And also you're building a life, you yeah. know, with, with your wife then. Yeah, for sure. That was, yeah. I mean, it's like, and, and that was part of the, you know, again, you can only see this looking backwards. I thought I felt on top of the world. Yeah. And then, you know, when you, I look back, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is like this like senior you looking back at junior you, yeah. like, ah, young grasshopper. And um, I, I felt, you know, I, I felt like everything I had it figured out. And of course, only then do you reveal that you know nothing. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is, is there's this really kind of like book ending type of experience here or bookend type of things where the way that you enter this career mm -hmm has people who are already in it saying, who do you think you are too? Yep. The way that you then choose to not entirely leave the career, but kind of like step into the next phase of your life. I'm, I'm, I would bet also had a lot of people who wanted to be you at that moment in time saying, how could you leave this behind? Yeah. 
Like how can, like, this is what we all, this is what so many people want. Yep. It's what you've worked so hard to build. You've gotten to this place. How, how can you start to step away from that? Totally. It goes back to the thing that we sort of opened with is, is this, the pressure that it comes from all these external inputs and arguably those external inputs, they create a lot of self-talk and then those pressures become internal as well. Of like you said, like how could you possibly do this? A, how did you get here? You know, you don't belong here. You know, so there's a lot of mindset that has to happen to overcome that. A lot of strength and mindset, and a lot of damage and pain and all those other things that go with it. I don't want to go pollute it. And then on the other end, to your point now, and you say, okay, great, I'm gonna. It's not. It, I wasn't leaving the creative industry, but I wanted to start carving out broader territory what was possible for a photographer and and how we as a as as creators can think and it was also met with a ton of resistance like why would you i there's a little stint where i had i was partner in an agency that i started that then started did the iphone app that was the first iphone app that shared photos to social networks called called best camera it was app of the year in 2009 and a lot of people didn't really understand it. They just saw it as sort of a, like another a, a parallel path, but maybe this guy's kind of weird. He's doing some shit that's not that's not what photographers do. And I can't say that I had a perfect plan. I had it all scoped out and it was perfect or intentional even, but I knew that it was the thing that was inside me. And that's like, if you can't name it and you can't point to it and you can't pick it up and show it to somebody, that's part of what's hard about our calling and is that it sometimes is a whisper and there's rarely a map. It's almost always just a compass. And if you think about the difference between a map and a compass, the map shows you the whole path, right? You go to here, you get there and you can plot it and you can see where you have to go. And a compass is just, it's just a pointer. <laughs> it's just, I got to go East or I got to go North or whatever your direction is. And to me, that's the lesson that I learned from that is as it, it made me so in tune with my intuition. It was almost like this is a requirement that you do this. And again, I wish I could have discovered these things without the traumatic <laughs> event and just with, by reading a great book. And I think you can, that's part of why I wrote this book is because yeah. the, the calling was always there. It was always inside of me. I was just so thick headed that I needed to get hit with a sledgehammer or a wall of snow moving at 60 miles an hour down yeah. a 2000 foot face in order to listen. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, right? The, um, one, the idea that you think you hit a point where you, you reach a certain level of success where either the external expectation machine goes away or you just don't care about it anymore. And the truth is it keeps cycling back like during every major seasonal shift in your life. And you have to, again, grapple with it. Yep. I remember a couple of years back sitting down with a mutual friend of ours, Debbie Millman, and sort of exploring this idea of discontent and expectations with her. And I was like, do you know anyone in this? And you know, she's been in the creative industry for so yeah, long first, and she knows yeah. everybody. Yeah, you know, she's like, a legend. Do you, do you know anybody who is at that point where they're just content and the expectations? And she named two men who at that point in their lives were, were icons in the field and we're in their 80s. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's kind of like, okay, so Massimo maybe, Vignelli maybe was one of them. Massimo Vignelli yeah. and Milton Glaser. There you go. Right? So, <laughs> so like at that point, you're like, okay, maybe when you're there, you're like, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. Whatever. I'm good. Yeah. Um, but until then, I think it's fascinating having, having you know, spoken to so many people who have created and shifted and changed to see this 
continually cycle back into their experience of creation and recreation. So you end up in 2010 starting this thing called Creative Live, which becomes this massive educational platform starting in the early days for photographers and creative professionals and really expanding out into basically anybody who has the Jones to make something from nothing. Yep. In no small part, you know, there, it, it becomes a powerful business engine on its own, standalone. But also, this is you stepping in a, on a really grand scale into that contribution uh, part of the arc there. Mm-hmm. It's also, it sounds like, you know, you're building this thing. It's become, you know, becomes very successful. As it, it, and it's you stepping into the role of CEO. It's you stepping into the role of, of running this organization. It's you stepping into the role of something bigger where you're much more forward-facing too in a lot of ways and your burden (laughs) on multiple levels changes profoundly were you ready for that and and how did how did you and have you experienced that definitely not ready for it and i think that's part of um that's a lesson that i talk a lot in the book about of of if you sat around and you wait until you're ready you'll never start yeah and of all of the lessons i've learned through a creative career um, just this, this concept of starting is a, is a very powerful one and you don't need to have the answers. You don't need to have the map. You don't have to see the whole staircase. You just have to see the next step. And that's part of the calling is that we can, we actually into intuitively know the next step, or if we don't, it's there, it's available for us. We have to find a way to tap into it. And to me, this, like, I didn't have what, what developing the iPhone app that went on to become the app of the year in 2009, what that did is that helped me understand that that we were going to be able to build tools that could help scale creativity. And that was interesting to me, especially go back to, you can start to see connect the dots now, go back to my film, like how painful that was. And so I started developing tools. Oh, if you had an iPhone app that you could take a picture. I mean, this is how crazy this sounds right now. It was the first app that did two things, allowed you to take a picture, actually three things, take a picture, add a thing called a filter, and then press one button and then it could share it to social networks. Revolutionary. (laughs) And then, so that was one thing that it did first. And another thing, it was the first photo feed. Mm. So Apple didn't have a mechanism. They first rejected it um, from the App Store because they said that there was no way to, that you couldn't have a thing called a photo feed because you couldn't possibly manage those feed, those photos going into a feed that they would then serve up on their service for anyone to see. So we had to work very closely with them. And I think they understood the vision that I'd had is like, no, this is going to be how things are going to be consumed. You can start to see it in, in Twitter and you can see it in Facebook. And then so if photography is going to be the same way. So we were able to work with them. And, and in seeing those patterns, what I was ultimately seeing was how technology could scale creativity. And then if you apply that to then, so you could see me becoming a creator and then starting to build tools for creators and then realizing that what was missing was a platform for people to learn how to use those tools because the tools does not a creator make. So, you know, that was a progression. And and every one of those steps I was in way over my head, no idea, but I think there's something profound with starting before you're ready and starting to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's a muscle, you know, that's the, you know, those are a couple of, key principles that I like to talk about in the book. And I think they're good to bring up here. One is that we're all creative. This is not creativity is, you know, art rather is a subset of creativity. Creativity is a very big thing. It's putting unique ideas together. You also have to then believe that creativity is a muscle and that by using this muscle, it is a, it is a, it is a habit is not a skill. It is a process, not a product. And 
in things that are process oriented, that's how we develop muscles, the same as, as working out, for example. And then if you believe one and two, and then what, what follows with three is that it's in creating every day and using these muscles with small things, baking a cake, even building a business, which you could argue is much bigger than building a cake. But in building those things on a daily basis, you actually realize that you can create the life of your dreams. It's just creativity at a different scale. And since the same muscle that is deciding what your life arc is going to be is baking a cake, playing music, making this podcast, publishing your blog, morning pages, same muscle, different scale. So what I started realizing is like, okay, I wanted to make some tools for myself or become a creator, make some tools for myself and my friends, then do a learning platform. And ultimately the book is like, it's sort of like explaining all this stuff, which is probably the arc that you're walking on right now. And for me, this, the, the, the role as a new CEO in over my head, again, founded the company and it grew very quickly because it was, we tapped into a good idea. And then I started realizing, oh, I'm in over my head. You know, here's the great thing to do is like, what is it? Smart people, they delegate and great creators, they outsource the things that they don't do or they don't know well. And, and so I'd, I'd found people that I thought could be really helpful, both venture capitalists and CEOs that had, you know, had lots of experience and brought those people in to help me with my project. And, um, it was, again, it was a small, very highly committed group of people at this time. And we assembled a new team and, and you, I, I came to realize pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work, that there isn't always a shared vision and that the, you're sold a, a narrative that, um, you're not in the same way that people are sold a narrative that they're not creative. Us creatives are often sold a narrative that we're not business people. Right. And you know, without and going, almost you almost that you shouldn't be business for people. sure. Oh, just focus because you get kicked really. out of the club for, for real. Yeah, and you know, not dissimilar. I, I I believed that we were all becoming hyphens. That you know, when I started becoming a photographer, you had to just do that. And I was like, no, I need to actually make a living. I got to put. I don't know about you all, but I got to feed myself and my family. And so there was this necessity to be, it was not a desire to become good at selling your art or purveying your goods or whatever you want to couch it. No, it was like requirement. And then you realize, oh, then I started like developing software for like the iPhone and then you start to just become many things. And then when video came out for cameras, you started, oh wait, now I'm a director and I'm making video. So by extension, you know, fast forward to this world where now I'm building a startup and now I'm a startup founder. And now we have, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, tier one, triple a gold diamond, some of the best investors in the whole world want to give you money to help build the thing, but that doesn't come with no purse strings. So then you have to figure out that whole universe. So I guess the, the punchline is it never stops. And you can either be uncomfortable and disappointed around that and be frustrated, mm. or you can find a way to enjoy the process and realize that it is a process. And that process is a process of personal development, of growth, of, I mean, what are you going to do otherwise? Like, that's another way of thinking about it. Like, what's the alternative? Yeah. Well, it wasn't <laughs> that, you know, like the famous Bob Dylan quote, which I, I won't get it exactly right. You know, like we're, you know, those of us who aren't busy being born are busy being, are busy dying. Yeah. You know, th there's, there's no stasis. No, there's no sideways. No. You're, you know, you're either you're in this process of rebirth, creation, elevation, or slow decline. You may mm -hmm. not see it because it may be happening at a pace where you're not consciously aware of. Mm -hmm. 
but one of those two trajectories is always unfolding. Yep. And I, and my sense is that you know, the great fallacy is that we have less input than we think we have. You know, like that's a story we tell ourselves. Yeah. And, and again, some of us have we have varying levels, but when you always ask yourself, you know, like where is my sense of, do I have agency? And, and and if so, how much do I have and where does it lie? If I don't, is there anything I can do to slowly get it? Creative Calling is a book about agency. Yeah. I, and that's really what jumped out at me. This is something where it's like, okay, so what if I was both responsible and came from a place of possibility? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So we're nine years into Creative Live at this point, right? Yep. Start 2010-ish. Yep. Um, yep. So you've got this big thing kind of rolling behind the scenes. Um, still doing some some photographing. Like that hasn't completely left you. No, I was photographing you before we started. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and something in you says, you know what? Okay, so now I'm at a point in my life where I'm well into my contribution arc. The platform that I built, the company that I built has touched what's the number, like 10 million people at this point? Tens of millions, right. yeah. Um, but there's another itch in me, which is there, there are some fundamental ideas, frameworks, um, offerings that would best be served up in the dish of a book. How does that drop into your mind? And when it does, are you like, Oh, hell yes, or I'll, oh, no, hell no. <laughs> very, un, very unpleasantly. It, that's all, that I, will, I will answer that. It, it very unpleasantly drops into my lap. And here's why it's unpleasant. And 
I actually really gravitated to photography in part because of my lack of patience. And I, I started out experimenting with light and, and before even my photography uh, painting started out with oil and that was too slow. So I moved to acrylic. It was a little bit faster, but not as fast as a photograph and a photograph is virtually instant. Right. And then even then you had to go in the dark room and do all those things. And so it wasn't quite instant. And now digital photography is like, okay, it's, it's virtually instant. And so in, in you know, having built a, a decade, multi-decade career in that universe, the thought of doing a book sucked. It was horrible, but I also was very well aware that that was the right package for this because, um, I've done just through, through different, um, you know, being lucky enough to have some things that, that someone wants to put you on television. I've done a lot of the daytime talk shows and all that kind of stuff. And, and TV gives you like three to five minutes max, like a five minute segment is a massive segment. Radio is a little bit longer. This is, you know, podcasts now are an amazing opportunity, but still that's like, you know, it's an hour. And I knew that the, 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 the ambition that I had for a book, which is really the why, right? So why, why does all this matter? What's this creativity stuff? And it seems like fuzzy. And there are a couple books that deal with it and they deal with it in a very academic, like very, I need to wear a beret and you have to be pure and you have to do all these things. And to me, that's not what creativity is. It's super accessible. Everybody has it. And so I needed to put the, these ideas into a vehicle that was really broadly accessible that you could listen to if you wanted to on audible or whatever, you know, you could pick it up. You could carry it with you. You, there was a lot of an opportunity for depth and a lot of explication storytelling. And the fact that I've lived this life, I can easily recount my experiences, but I've also interviewed hundreds of people in my podcast. Some of the top creators and entrepreneurs, like, you know, the, the people that are at the apex of their career in every discipline, had them on my show and that dissimilar to the guests that you've had. And you start to, you start to see really clear patterns and yeah. you start to see where you've gone wrong. And I think that's something that is also was, I'm very aware of with this book is a lot of books that I have read, especially sort of that hit the business or creativity or business or entrepreneurship. They basically lay out what they call, you know, they consider the gold standard. This is how you do it. And this, what it results in is the perfect experience. And you know what? nothing is perfect. Why would you have a book that took everything as if you looked at through this perfect lens and you started it the right way the first time and you know, you hired perfectly and then you got the funding that you needed and then you, or you built the product. And my story in the book is everything but that it's like, no, no, I was a hundred grand in debt student loans because I'd made choices that cost me 10 years of my life and a hundred grand. I made choices where I, they basically have just done so many things wrong with it's littered with landmines around there. And so the hope is that you can learn through, <laughs> through my, my misgivings and the, the, the stuff that I've learned from others that there is a path through all the stuff and we can connect some of the dots and it's not prescriptive, but in the particular, in my story and the stories of the folks that I share in the book lies the universal and these, there are these handfuls of universal truths about creativity and about um, human discovery and human connection that I think are really critical when we're talking about creativity. Yeah. It was interesting as, as I, you know, like we've known each other for a long time now. Um, I think it's coming on 10 years, right? I, it's probably something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's fun for me just as, you know, like a friend 
to be able to dive into something like this because it takes me deeper into the workings of your mind and also fills in some gaps in the stories that generally friends don't yeah. sit around talking about. Yeah, you had no idea about the Avalanche story. Bro. I didn't. I didn't. And the other thing was that as, as I was reading along, I was, I was like, I, I had flashes of things like Twilight Tharps, you know, the creative habit. Yep. And three words kept sort of like popping into my mind. One was habit, which you talk about, and we've talked about agency or sense of creative control, you know, which again, you talk about and we've talked about. And this thing also with getting, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but finding the capacity for equanimity in the face of sustained uncertainty. That is like a poetry what you just said right there i'm gonna we gotta write that down that is like <laughs> you you speaking in prose now man um because i i think that is those three things you know like saying okay so yes it is both uh, our opportunity and responsibility to step into a place of creative control it takes habit you know like this is not a, an a, there's not it's not a magical thing mm -mm. this is your devotion over time over and over and over and over and the uncertainty part of it comes in from the fact that you don't know how this is going to end. It could be horrible. The thing that you worked 10 years to create could suck. And yet you still have to show up and do the thing every day. And that is, in my mind, maybe the hardest thing of really committing yourself to a life of creation. Yeah. And... God, that was like I'm definitely transcribing this. That you, it was that was beautifully put. Will you go on book tour with me? We can just <laughs> walk around and go to all the different cities. And, and here's my friend. He's going to speak for me. That was super well said. And I think the um, each of those things is so true. And part of the it's a really critical piece of the puzzle. I think is that. This is not pretentious. This is not for a select few. This is, I'm trying to put creativity on the same level as nutrition. It is nutrition and exercise. They, they are pretty much seen as not optional. Like you have to move your body or it stops working. You have to eat or your body stops having, you know, it loses its capacity to function. And I think the same is true with creativity. It's something that, you know, this is... A, paraphrasing Maya Angelou, it's one of the only resources where the more you use, the more you get. And if you don't use it, not only does it not help you, but it becomes toxic because this is, we are creating machines. It's sort of like a machine that doesn't do what it's supposed to do is not going to function well. And I think that is our reason for being is we are creating machines, form something new and useful. And when we don't do that thing, or creativity that goes, I'll say, unexpressed, it becomes toxic. There's a, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about this, if you're familiar with her work, about it doesn't, you know, it turns out that that unused creativity is not benign, it's toxic. And, you know, the flip is also true that, you know, we have this little, this piece of creative plutonium inside us, and it can power us for a hundred lifetimes. And when you start to use it, and you start, to, what, what it sort of uncovers is this agency that you talk about, you know, go to my earlier point that when you're baking a cake and you're playing the guitar, you do become a better doctor, dentist, custodian, horseback rider, because you start to understand that 
wait a minute, I'm actually, I have agency. And when you start to realize that the more of this that you do, the more agency you both are aware of and then can create for yourself becomes a really beautiful uh, cycle, I guess. It's like a the best, um, most virtuous cycle that I, I'm aware of. It, you know, maybe there's one with love in there. The the more love that you can put out in the world, it's coming back to your gratitude. But that's the level that I'm talking about in this stuff. And I don't. It doesn't need to be at all fancy. It doesn't need to be academic. And honestly, that's the only thing that I would say with other those those the books about creativity that have come before this one. I think they're incredible. I've learned so much. I've read all of them multiple times, but they're also, they seemed like academic and there's a, there's a little bit like a, um, you need to wear the beret and you need, it's precious. And I'm trying to do something that's very not precious and I don't know if it succeeded or not, but that's the lens. Yeah. I have a sense also that, you know, part of the thing that's driving you is, is the notion that we are all creative and it's not precious. It's the domain of every person, but at the same time, um, you know, when you learn the fundamentals of a creative process in the context of one particular application or domain, mm-hmm. it's sort of like what you were just talking about. There's a sense of creative cross-training that happens where this then, the same principles, the same ideas, the same frameworks, um, a lot of which you, you've talk, you talk about, you write about, and this has been stuff that you have been learning, developing in this arc of decades now that those same things expand out into your ability to create the life that you have in your brain on some level, you know, to create, to design, to, or co-create, you yeah. know, with whatever it is that is out there that you believe in accompanies yep. you along the journey. Yep. Um, and that, that is a big part of kind of what you're about and, and what, what this book is about. It's a very, um, Again, you just keep putting it better than I could put it. <laughs> just, you know, that's what I'm hoping the book does. Is it's, and and while I was whinging about writing because I'm impatient and I just knew that, you know, I didn't really choose the medium. The medium was like, nope, this thing has to be a book and it has to be written in audio. And I have I did my own audio. So if you're an audible person, like that was a process in itself too. Um, and and yet the um, just trying to put it in a package that was uh, something that was also outside. It was very trippy to be, and you'll, you'll appreciate this, to be writing about creativity and to be, so you're creating on a daily basis and you're resisting your own advice from 20 pages earlier or 50 pages earlier. I'm, I'm, I'm internally cringing because I've done that so many times. I'm like, yep, in uh, there and I will be again. Yep. Yep. And, and so, uh, I, I knew you could appreciate that. So it was also, um, it was a very, you know, it goes back to this being a, a, a process, not a product. It's a habit, not a skill. Hmm. And when I was getting up at five in the morning, cause you know, I'm, I'm also like building creative live and, that that takes a ton of energy and you know it's a big big job in itself and so this was something i was trying to do at five in the morning and and on the weekends and and it didn't come easy and but at the same time i ultimately had to follow the book and to me this is you know maybe this is part of the book tour story but like it works (laughs) it's 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 when you think of it as this as a process where you're constantly, I liked how you thought about co-creating, 
you know, he said, you're, you're co-creating that with, you know, whatever you believe in, but you're moving forward. It's three steps forward, one step back, sometimes worse than that. It's just a great reminder that it's just the act of putting one step in front, one foot in front of the other. And I think that's, there's something that is uh, a strong theme in the book of, I, I refer to it pretty often as action over intellect. Yeah. You can't actually think your way out of it. Mm-mm. And we believe we, you know, we have these rational minds and their tools and we're taught to use them in school and we believe that they're infallible. And the reality of both the science and my own instinct and experience tells me, no, no, this is rational thought is actually slow. Intuition is very fast and intuition is more in the body and the, the brain is, no, no, we're going to take this as we're going to do it like this. And the fact that we have all these faculties, we've been taught to not use them. And, you know, it was just a very, very messy <laughs> messy process that you cannot think your way out of. You have to take action. It's sort of like riding a bike. It's, is it actually even riding a bike if you're just balancing? No, you need some forward momentum to be able to figure out what the next thing you're going to do with the handlebars and the brakes and the pedals, right? You can't do that standing still. Yeah. You, you can't take the perfect shot or the paint, you know, like a gorgeous stroke or build an incredible company or an amazing relationship with a human being by just reading every book that was ever written about it or thinking it through, like you got to actualize around it. Yeah. Um, yeah. feels like a good place for us to come full circle sitting here. It's funny. I was, I was thinking I didn't have a chance to review the uh, first time that we taped because it was so long ago. Um, I don't, I don't remember if I was asking this question at the end of the conversations, but um, you know, as we sit here in this container of the good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? is to be unapologetically yourself. That's why this book is both about, like it will supercharge your creative skills if that's what you desire. But it's really about a journey back to who you are. And it's about creating the living, and not just the living, but the life that you want for yourself. And that's the number one regret of the dead and the dying, right? Is that they took too many inputs from other people. And so this is both a journey through doing and creating in small you know, habitual, simple ways, making a, a meal for your family or a business or all the various examples we've got. But it's really a journey back to you, the human, and the life that you want to lead. And who do you listen to? And how do you pair that out from all the, like, what's the signal to noise ratio of everything you have going on in your life? And there are a lot of people and those people are important and they all have opinions. And, and yet, how do you become what is your highest calling, which is to be unapologetically you to stand in everything that you stand for the good, the bad, the indifferent, even the ugly and just own it because in that is this immense sense of, and again, it's just like, it's, it's a process of becoming, you know, it's, it's like, there's no stasis. You're never just like, I have arrived. Maybe, you know, Massimo Vignelli can, can claim it, but I can't, but the, uh, but I do know that. And, and you know, if you're listening right now, that you've tapped into this before where you're doing the things you're supposed to be doing. You're listening to that piece of you that is authentic. And so, you know, your full circle question is like, what is it? All this is basically a journey about, you know, being your unapologetic self. And that is an act of creativity and it requires recreating on a regular basis in small daily habit ways. None that require you to move to Paris or get oil paints or, but in just an awareness of what it is that you're doing to find that journey back to you. Mm. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.